0: I remember many years ago one of my music teachers um, saying that... I think it was General Eisenhower, and I could have that wrong, but someone like that, uh, and apologies to him and his memory if if this is wrong. It it actually doesn't matter who it was uh, for the point of what I'm I'm, uh, relating. Um, But General Eisenhower, or someone, said... uh, proclaimed, I only recognize two pieces of music. One is Yankee Doodle Dandy, and the other isn't. And um, so I don't quite know the context or even the, 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 the what he was getting at uh, when he said that and whether it's relevant that uh, the tune he did recognize (laughs) was, um, you know, a patriotic, nationalistic, militaristic uh, thing or not. But imagine someone, uh, or consider someone um, who has that kind of uh, degree or extent of tone deafness in in relation to, to music, it uh they they're you know really quite unreceptive to music and really quite unperceptive. so what they're perceiving, what they're getting from it is um, you know almost for, for some people it would, be, it would be staggeringly little. Now if such a person were to insist that there is just one tune, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and the rest of it was just random noise, for instance, or the rest of it was all actually the same thing, or something to that effect. What would you say to such a person if they absolutely insist that their perception there is <coughs> is uh, reflective of reality? And probably in his case, he's Surrounded from childhood with people who seem to be getting something from music, and school teachers, etc., who kind of hopefully kindly, you know, explain to him that um, you know he's missing something there, etc. But what if only you know relatively few people, let's say in the society, got music? What would happen then? So there were only relatively few people who somehow music was very meaningful to them, full of all kinds of relationships that they could hear between sounds and themes and um, modulations of key or, you know, pitches and harmonies and rhythms and textures. And, and they perceived a great deal of nuance, of, of structure and shading and uh, evolution and, and all that. And it had a, had a, it had, uh, a, a huge um, uh, effect on them, on their heart, on their psyche, on, on the body, on the soul, the meaningfulness. Imagine if there were just a few people like that in a society where everyone else uh, was more like General Eisenhower. Might it not be then that they were considered somehow a bit, um, perhaps even pathological, uh, maybe crazy? Maybe that some people think, oh, they're just pretending, they're imagining something, and the claim was that's not real, what they're what they're perceiving there, and what they you know feel they're seeing these relationships, these uh, you, you know me- meanings, etc it's not real for me this is quite an interesting uh, reflection so like, is music and those relationships and the um, r- relationships between essentially just sounds pitches timbres, you know all that are they r- real or not real uh, uh it this is it's an interesting question is is music and i don't just mean you know the fact that here's a pitch of so many frequency of so many hertz etc and this rhythm is twice the uh, you know rapidity of this rhythm or something like that i mean the whole gestalt of it including its sense of meaningfulness and and beauty and uh, soul and all that is that real or not real is that even the right question w- would we better ask is it important now, for some people, clearly, it's not important, and for others, it's extremely important. Music, those relationships, the, the meaningfulness there, the soulfulness, the heartfulness, the effects on the body, all, all of that, moving it to dance, or, or just t- touching the, 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 the psyche to the core, stimulating. That's not a question of reality or not reality. It's, it's important. And uh, another question... It, rather than is it real or not real, is is it soul making? Is it soul making? So these questions are what you know of what's important and what's soul making, rather than what's real or not real, um, are, are more more uh, in, if you like important or relevant questions for certain areas of our experience. Actually, for quite a lot in life and it's also interesting to note and i know this is someone who's you uh, know was a musician and studied music etc that the sensitivity to music the perceptivity the receptivity the understanding and the noticing and the picking up of all kinds of nuances of relationships etc um between what is you know at one level just just sound uh, different kinds of sound um uh, that is developable. So the percept- perceptivity, the capacity of perception, the capacity of the, the subtleties, the nuance, the capacity of understanding concepts there uh, and relationships, and or even the degree of effect. All of this is developable. It's trainable. What if we transfer that whole um, set of analogies there around music <coughs> and receptivity, per- perceptivity? Capacity of perception in relation to and conception in relation to music uh, and soulfulness and importance, and transfer that to the perception of nature and the perception of um, others in our lives, or things, or the cosmos. So again, we can reduce it just like so you can reduce music to sort of um, the physics of sound this pitch, that frequency, this timbre with this kind of wave on the oscilloscope or whatever, all that. Uh, we are missing something that's more important to us, that can, uh, whose perception we can uh, deepen and deepen and open and refine and enrich, etc. Maybe the same with nature. Maybe the same with perception of others. Uh, the imaginal perception that we're talking about, when there's an erotic relationship with music, with art, with nature, with another, with others, with a thing, an object, with the cosmos. So the whole real, not real question is, is a little misguided there. And yet you can see how much just what is um, kind of acceptable or the dominant view within a culture can tend to really hold sway and gain an authority just because it's what most people are able to perceive and or it's not what most people are able to perceive then again you get you get the converse as well in history of just some the authority of those who claim to perceive something and the reality of what they perceive over those who don't etc. And oftentimes this is what you get, you get the, uh, apart from the political issues there, you get um, a clash of realisms, a clash of essentially fundamentalisms. This is true, all reality is based on this, or, or this is real. Someone describes something, a, a mystical perception, or a spiritual perception, a magical perception, that's rubbish, it doesn't exist. And the other person says, they do exist, these stones really are talking to me this whatever it is, um, and both are kind of assuming, um, even if they're not aware of it, they're drawing on, basing on uh, their, you know, arguments, if you like, uh, uh, an assumption of some kind of objective, independently existing reality. And it doesn't exist like that, or it does exist like that. But that's all that reality kind of means. And people you know get very um it's it's a charged issue i mean certainly in certain circles it's a charged issue, and so some people you know who oppose a kind of um, uh, any importance or place given to imaginal perception and mystical perception spiritual perception etc there's a kind of secular crusade that some people try and wage um, and, and probably, you know, vice versa in, in history, etc., or at present. And so someone might say, you know, uh, try and say something like, science shows that these things don't exist. But actually this person has not understood science and the whole scientific project. Does it show that these things do not exist? What is the range of science? What science even um, purports or is qualified or equipped to investigate? And what is the range of the scientific method? So the very the very structure of the scientific method is to leave out deliberately a whole slew of our uh, of um, aspects of our being because it, it just determined that that's not what we're doing in the scientific method where we're paring that away. And something similar goes on with mindfulness as well. One is amputating, chopping off a whole range of other um, dimensions of our being, of our experience, of our ways of knowing, etc. So a person who says something like that um, would, would do well, I, I think, um, to, to investigate a little bit of philosophy of science um, over, over the centuries and especially more recently. And to question, you know, even what science says about basic realities. For example, the electron, subatomic particle. No one's ever seen an electron. The reality given to an electron is not the reality of of a a little tiny billiard ball. That's a a model of it. And even that model is not really the model of modern uh, quantum mechanics and science. It has no Where? No, uh, when specifically, objectively, independently existing, the electron is no place, and it's no. Um, uh, it doesn't occur at any time. It has no particular um, velocity or mass, etc. It's not really even a thing, as 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 Niels Bohr said. Is it, it? Does it even have existence? So don't assume that what you learn in high school and what you kind of. Um, surmised about science and what it proves or what it asserts is actually the reality of uh, what someone at the, at the frontiers of science, let's say a particle physicist, etc., who's really at the edge, um, would, uh, would, and actually doing you know creative research there, would actually hold and what, anyway, um, is the difference between the scientific method? I would deliberately put aside feelings. I would deliberately put aside imagination. I would deliberately um, put aside um, even eth- ethical uh, values, aesthetic um, values. That's the ideal of the scientific method. And it's a method, it's a methodology. It's not a fact about reality. Yeah. So we, what started as a scientific methodology in the scientific revolution and with and with <coughs> the Western Enlightenment, actually became somehow over over actually over several hundred years, entrenched as uh, an unquestioned fact about reality and existence. And strictly speaking, it's it's a methodology. It's a one way of knowing. Someone a little bit more sophisticated. Um, say uh who's keen to uh, not give much place to imaginal perceptions either intrapsychically or in the uh in in and of the world um, m- m- mystical states of consciousness and perception would would say perhaps something like um would would know that uh you know notion of truth is no longer philosophically sort of respectable and if you go using words like truth etc it tends to raise eyebrows in certain circles of um disapproval and uh questioning supercilious questioning um, which which is fine um but then oftentimes they uh, they avoid that word, perhaps deliberately and perhaps make a make a noise about avoiding that word, but underneath they're they're assuming some kind of basic existential reality or facticity to borrow a fancy. Uh, fashionable word from modern philosophy, um, of our situation. This is our situation. We live in a meaningless material universe of which we are emergent. Our consciousness and our being and our complexity is uh, over the eons of evolution, is a uh, amazing uh, e- um, uh, e- evolution out, out of matter. Consciousness is an epiphenomenon. But essentially, the world is... Um, material, there are no other dimensions really and uh, it's finite, we are finite we're faced by our death and the extinction of all that and that you're trying to um, pump up the imaginal or mystical perception or things that happen in meditation and all that or ideas about um, ultimate transcendent uh, something transcendent that we can open to beyond the senses, etc., and all that, beyond materiality, all that. Um, this is just your uh, attempt at a kind of consolation because you can't handle the fact of our existence, of the truth of our existential situation. Of course, they don't use the word truth, so they might use this word facticity or something. Or just just the accusation of consolation-seeking already assumes that this is the truth. The existential fact is what you seek consolation in, with respect to. So I might not use the language of truth, might hide it, might etc. But it's functioning there, and there's the, as I said, the clash of realism so often in these kind of conversations. And a person um, who is drawn to investigating and opening up and exploring the imaginal and mystical states of consciousness and perception and questioning the whole, uh, uh, you know, assumptions about reality, etc. that are so pervasive in our modernist and materialist and physicalist culture, um, can very easily uh, embark on that kind of investigation with all their enthusiasm and openness and very easily be shaken into doubt uh, or uh, if you like, pressed into doubt just because of the pervasiveness of the of the dominant view in in our culture, um, uh, or they might hear a talk or read a book by someone who's uh, presenting the sort of um, case for. Erasing and eradicating mystical perceptions and mystical notions, and ima- uh, any place for the imaginal in a talk or in a book, uh, could be in a secular context, could be in a secular Dharma context, could be here at Guy House, could be wherever. And it's very easy now um, to be, for a person, uh, to be buffeted this way and that by all the opinions, kind of um, Flying around uh, this this way and that, and um, in the community, whether it's a smaller community or the larger community of the culture, and so a person uh, wanting to explore and, and having experiences and being really touched by certain experiences, imaginal openings and perceptions, uh, or meditative openings and experiences, etc. All. Differing kinds, um, experiences which potentially can be really um, fertilizing and and fertile as seeds in the psyche, in the consciousness, in the life, um, can very easily because of um, all these different opinions, because of what's dominant in the culture, and because of a lot of the aggression that often goes with that, um, which itself is very interesting. Um, why is there so much aggression um, bound up with this? Uh, with, with this question. Um, <clears throat> um, but such a person, such a, 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 a meditator or a yogi or a person exploring this way can then be, as I said, assailed by doubt, even paralyzed, had these experiences, been touched by them, feel drawn to them, want to open to them. Something happens, I hear so-and-so give a talk or I read a few pages of a book or, or whatever it is and, and somehow it goes into a kind of freeze, um, something gets paralysed, or they they just dismiss, or they're ashamed, um, or they keep it to themselves, and then it, it withers, or something. And especially when um, the, what they read or hear is quite aggressive, and the person who is um, being dismissive uh, and p- perhaps being aggressive or, or polemical, or, or in the, in their sort of crusade against. <clears throat> these kind of openings of perception, openings of ways of looking, etc. doesn't need to even say anything particularly brilliant or radically incisive or particularly even new as, as, a, as an idea or an insight. Oftentimes all they need to do is just slowly and clearly and take their time, just basically, essentially repeat um, the dominant, unquestioned view of the culture. Um, it, oh, to which we have all been exposed over years um, in our culture um, even if you grew up in a religious setting you're still exposed to that um, what I would call the dominant view of modernism, of physicalism, etc of meaninglessness and all that um, of what the reality of our existential situation is so a person can grow up um, uh, you know buffeted by different views oftentimes maybe that characterizes our society but this this physicalist um, uh, what should we call it um, flat world view um the sect of secular modernism um, is something we 've all been kind of subject to pervasively and from all different sides um, loudly and implicitly, so a lot of these messages are really not uh, even that obvious, um, uh, for years. Um, So all the person has to do is just slowly and clearly repeat, if you like, what you've already heard, what you already, some part of you already understands and knows, without uh, actually making explicit the assumptions underneath that and the the historical context of that, etc., in a way, the power of that argument um, comes from its from the fact that it's a it's a repetition and it's a hearing of what one already know, already has heard before and knows and been kind of indoctrinated with and a power if you like from um, the solidarity, if you like to borrow a, a, a phrase again from Richard, a word from Richard Rorty, and just the fact that so many people um, either buy into it completely or buy into it um, at least partially in this kind of cognitive dissonance between that and their more spiritual beliefs or whatever. So, because it's a repetition of what you've already been saturated in and because everyone else seems to a- agree um, it, it it makes that position actually quite easy uh, they don't have to say anything or write anything particularly um, incisive or new or whatever or often what happens is a kind of straw man gets set up uh, uh, as an opposition who's an easy target someone who uh, you know like a Islamic fundamentalist uh, terrorist or, or someone like that or or you know some of the corruption in the papacy or some something or someone who's c- clearly you know ridiculously holding on to something out of a desperate um, uh, fear of consolation or, or uh, sorry fear of their uh, perceived existential situation and wanting consolation etc it's, it's a straw man it's an easy target. So that, why am I saying all this? Just to make the point again that, um, you know, a grasp of, and I I use that word um, uh, carefully, a grasp of, um, a rootedness in, um, of, you know, a, a carefully thought out, structured, supportive, and generative conceptual framework, one that's to some degree reliable and robust and, excuse me, sophisticated and well-conceived enough, um, a, gr- a, a grasp of that, a rootedness in that, a consideration of that, a, 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 and uh, what's the word, a, uh, an internalization even of that, a, an active use of that in navigation, in orientation, um, will provide stability in that kind of culture, which is the culture we are in now buffeted by different opinions, often quite aggressive, etc., um, been exposed to certain points of view in- incredibly pervasively, so literally inundated by that view, so that we don't even consider it a dogma, because uh, it's so pervasive. It's like uh, a fish not recognizing water. Um mm. The water that it's swimming in, and uh, but but grasping grasping at uh, a grasp of, if you like, um, a rootedness in a use of um, an implementation of an incorporation of um, a careful supportive and generative conceptual framework brings allows a degree of stability, a degree of clarity, orientation, gives a kind of foundation, as I think I said already, and actually will open up experiences further. So those experiences that are potentially fertilizing as seeds can actually be that. They can actually fertilize the psyche, the, the mind, the heart, the being, the body, all of that. For the soul that wants soulfulness, that wants soul-making and admittedly and I'll come back to this we want that, human beings seem to want that to different degrees so that's, you know, this is partly why um, a conceptual framework is is really important Um, the entertaining of concepts and conceptual frameworks deliberately, consciously um, rigorously even so we've said <clears throat> part of uh, the a conceptual framework that, that I would say is needed, um think part of what must be included is this whole um, uh, unpacking, if you like, or explanation of the process of soul-making. So, um, uh, so based on, as you said, sort of phenomenologically noticing Oh yeah, and delineating different kinds of movement of desire. Uh, and so, if you like, drawing out this distinction of eros and what it's, what's involved with that and where it goes, just from observation of what is involved... For us, for the psyche, for the chitta, uh, if you like, uh, um, as human beings in our life, and then exploring and explaining the dynamics of, the, of that soul-making process, Eros, Psyche, Logos, in its expansion because of the pothos, etc., that we've that we've talked about. So some way or another, um, uh, part of the conceptual framework needs to. Um, kind of draw that out and, and give it kind of a, a conceptual grounding and structuring that's fertile. And uh, a, another aspect of the conceptual framework um, needs to be, I think, this non-separation of the chitta, uh, which includes the soul, um, what we're calling soul, non-separation of, of the, the mind, heart, soul, consciousness, Chitta, let's call it the bigger, non-separation of the chitta and whatever we sense of, of reality, or whatever reality is. There's a non-separation of chitta and reality. Um, and this include, this implied in that, or included with that, is the emptiness of all things, and the whole notion of ways of looking. So a way of looking is an aspect, uh, or a, 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 a mode of being of the chitta, if you like, at any time. So all that, this non-separation of citta and, quote, reality, and um, the emptiness of all things, and the notion of of, of diversity of ways of looking that are available to us, all that needs to be an aspect, an element, woven into the conceptual framework, which is said already. So that mindfulness um, uh, is not and does not um, expose reality as it is, things as they are does not expose what is uh, mindfulness is not um, uh, it does not bring us or, or uh, bring us in into an encounter with something called life as someone put it exercised exorcised of the tumor of metaphysics uh-uh. mindfulness is just one way of looking wrapped up with a certain conceptual f- well, actually quite a lot of concepts wrapped up in in mindfulness, in the experience, even of bare attention. It's one way of knowing. Great, it's fantastic, wonderful. It's one way of knowing, actually, probably it's more than that. In in really implicit in what the Buddha meant by mindfulness. There's already a range of ways of knowing. Um, But what we want, what we need, what the conceptual framework needs is to open, open uh, the ways of looking with this... Different, more sophisticated idea of reality and the non-separation of the of the chitta, including the soul and reality, the emptiness of all things, and the ways of looking—all kind of implicit together in that. So, an idea that we already uh, that I already mentioned—an um, idea like participation. Um, this is a concept. Um, it's also a a, a, a perception that I can have. It's an experience, if you like. It's an imaginal perception. Um, you know, But where does imaginal perception shade into what we wouldn't consider uh, imaginal perception? We would just consider perception. But an idea like participation, for instance, that this mind, my mind, in its depths, is, if you like, rooted in or um, participates in the mind of the cosmos. Not that it's just one with, but it participates in the mind of the cosmos. It uh, expresses the mind of the cosmos, the divine mind, or that my... my. Uh, imaginal faculty, the images that come to me, the images I perceive, either intracyc- so-called intracycly or of the world, these two are the imagination of the, of, of the divine, or the Buddha nature, or whatever. So I participate in the Buddha nature through my imaginal perception, or again, or the eros that I feel and all that whole range, and all the directions of my eros, is, um, we've said this a few times, I have the sense that I'm participating in the divine eros, in the eros of the the Buddha with his consort, the consort with the Buddha. However we frame it, there's some sense of this, of what I experience at one level as mine, is in another another level um, mirroring, echoing, rooted in, or originating in and participating in the divine eros, the divine imaginal faculty, divine imagination, the divine mind. So that idea uh, of participation, or the set of ideas that we might call participation, um, is an idea or a set of ideas that actually um, supports and stimulates soul-making. It brings more eros, more psyche, uh, more image, uh, gives imaginal dimension, opens imaginal dimension, and, and a stretching uh, and a uh, complicating of the logos, of the idea. So we get ideas, as we said, that actually support and fertilize the soul-making process. And therefore, it is a valuable idea. Why? Because it stimulates soul-making. It supports and stimulates and gives this uh, more dimensionality, etc., to the soul-making movement and dynamic. Therefore it is valuable. And therefore it is valid. It's it's valid because it's valuable. Those words are actually related etymologically. It's valid because it's valuable. And its value is that it stimulates what the soul loves—soul-making. It stimulates that beauty, that richness, that opening, that fertility, that creativity, that discovery. All of that, and the multi-dimensionality of that. It also includes this idea of participation, which is, if you like, um, part of uh, you know our set of ideas of. The set of ideas called participation is a part of a larger set of ideas which forms our conceptual framework, or may, may be part of our conceptual framework. But participation as, as a set of ideas also includes the, the, um, the understanding that we're not dealing with en- uh, anything that has an independent existence. So we participate in perception. We participate in the world that's perceived, uh, in the very perception of it. We participate in the divinity. We participate in a- actually anything. Uh, and so it, it has inherent, if you like, intrinsic to the very idea of participation is is the realization of that, the, that things are empty, that there are ways of looking, that our ways of looking are actually participatory. So what is seen, uh, the way it appears, and the way of looking. There's no independent existence uh, I- I implied in that. So say, this idea of participation in the divine, is that? are you saying that's ultimately true? First of all, it's not necessary to the soul-making that we believe it's ultimately true. A lot of people. It's, this is sometimes very hard for people to um, understand. Well, I think it's intrinsic to a certain um, depth of soul making because we realize image as image we can actually also realize if you like idea as idea. And it does. I don't need to. Actually, oh, this is ultimately true. Uh, in in order for something to have its power, its efficacy, its its capability, um, and potency to open and to seed and fertilize uh, our experience, our perception, our understanding, our heart, our soul, our minds, and all of that, and, and our lives. And actually, if you go into this whole question of um, uh, the whole meaning or exploration of participation, the very question is ultimately true uh, crumbles because of what the idea is it in itself. If we turn it the other way around, actually, um, to... <clears throat> Claim the independent uh, existence, the separate existence separate from uh, the way of looking, independent of the way of looking. Um, so I'm not just talking about, yeah, that uh, you know everything is physically connected to everything else, independent of the way of looking, independent of the, the chitta, if you like, separate from the chitta, to claim anything as um, independent in that way, from the way of looking separate from the jitta, um, is, is actually, I would say, definitely not true. Um, any attempt at doing that uh, so far in the history of uh, humanity has been, uh, you know, pretty seriously questioned. And what one finds is actually very hard to construct a coherent conceptual framework on a ground of solidity. On a ground of independent existence of something that's claimed to be independent exist, independently existent, so you know the attempt, for example, in physics to, to derive everything from the basic building blocks of matter just comes round again um, or so far has just come round again to questioning the reality of those the independent reality independent of or we could say the way of looking of those basic building blocks can't find them as independently existing things, independent of the way of looking. And Nagarjuna showed this even relative to um, Buddhist kind of atomism. A brilliant um, critique of the, you know, ec- exposing the impossibility of constructing a coherent um, conceptual framework on realist grounds. And again, in, in, in modern Western philosophy in, in recent years. Um, so from different directions, uh, it, it's almost like to, to have a grounding in a conceptual framework that's actually, um, you know, uh, solid in, in, in terms of it gives a foundation, like it's, uh, it has the effect of solidity. Our ground actually needs to be not solid. You understand? can't get away with claiming the um, independent, separate existence of anything. And claiming that that's a truth, that things, anything, exists independent, separate from the way of looking. <clears throat> and then this idea, set of ideas, of, we're calling participation, is... Um, it, it also kind of intrinsically um, implies that this observation or acknowledgement that we, are, uh, that we made, that we both, the, the way of looking both discovers and, and at the same time, because it grants sacredness to something or other don't you know, just discover it. we also we we grant it the way of looking grants it if you like we create it um th- uh whether it's an image or eros or whatever that um whole admission and observation is not a problem within within the I- ideal uh, so idea of participation so to me, there's a, there's a more sophisticated um, ontology and epistemology ra- and, and cosmology, in fact, metaphysics, if you like, wrapped up in, in something like the idea of participation, which can sound at first sight like just just abstract metaphysics with no grounding in, in uh, anything reality, anything real at all. So go into these things, actually really question, dare to question. So there's a kind of pragmatism here, which again is quite a popular word in modern philosophy, um, uh, that essentially states, well, you can kind of believe what works for you. Um, there's a pragmatism um, of approach and of conceptuality um, here, but it's actually one that, that actually opens possibilities possible new ways of looking, or the possibility of new ways of looking, and actually implements them, opens orientations, opens experiences, opens the living, and uh, opens uh, the the field of life uh, for us, the field of our existence, the sense of existence, in ways that we actually move through. Sometimes what you get is a sort of what's called pragmatist philosophy, but all it does is actually, as I said before, revert um, un- almost by default back to yeah, whatever was the default um, concept or ideation of ontology, epistemology, cosmology. Basically the default uh, hidden metaphysics there. And can we have something actually that's pragmatic, I meaning it's really practical, it's an idea um, or a set of ideas that is really actually practical. That we actually live that opens. Opens the perception, opens the experience, opens the ideation, opens the heart, opens the all that soul. So we need um, I, I, I would say what is needed is a some kind of conceptual frame, which means some set of connected ideas that um, supports an ongoingness, a potential ongoingness of exploration, inquiry. It supports the opening of frontiers, creativity and discovery um, in all domains and in all aspects of our being. Um, and even those domains and those aspects of the being can also uh, also get opened and increased, in other words, we discover domains and we discover aspects of being or we create them or both. Um, they are opened for us where before we had we had no sense that there was even that domain of being and that aspect of our existence. You understand some conceptual framework, some set of connected ideas that s- will support this this um, fecundity of of exploration, expansion, opening this um, uh, infinity of domains and dimensions and aspects of being of existence. Not ju- not just the intellect, certainly not. Not just the heart, not just the body. Not you know the artistic. All of this, the soul. The soul. What do you mean, soul? Well, it's a, it's a domain of the being. The way these open up, like what the body can be, what the heart can be, what the intellect can be. how it, In other words, how it can be conceived, not just the range of experiences there. And so opening up also with all that, a kind of potential inf- infinitude of interpretations, back to this hermeneutics, that existence, life, world, cosmos, being, humanity, Body, all of this uh, materiality there's an in infinitude of potential interpretations there. It's not constrained, it's not constricted through the participation itself, creating, discovering interpretations, and that is, if you like, the nature of existence that it is it, the nature of the cosmos is not limited. infinitude of interpretations the garden of infinite interpretations the orchard of infinite interpretations infinite interpretations by the way doesn't mean that any interpretation uh, goes or that any interpretation is just as good as any other one so I don't know if you know your mathematics of infinity there's different kinds of infinity so you can still have infinite interpretations while actually um, not uh, You can explore infinite interpretations, theoretically at least, without, um, and and still at the same time, not explore a whole other infinite set. It's the nature of infinity, right? In other words, I don't want to label this, but, you know, uh, there are infinite even numbers and there are infinite odd numbers. So you can have infinite... um, soul making interpretations and helpful interpretations and infinite unhelpful interpretations yeah um, but own only that to me to my to my way of thinking at the moment certainly o- only that kind of conceptual framework a would be philosophically viable and kind of you know legitimate or, or um, defendable um, but more importantly, only that kind of conceptual framework can satisfy soul. Only that kind of conceptual framework that's that fertile, that supports this ongoing expansion, um, complication, dimension, dimensionalizing, etc. Creativity, discovery, interpretation. Only that kind of conceptual framework can support that. Only conceptual framework can support that will satisfy soul. And what if, actually, we play with the idea um, of placing soul-making, and this this um, movement of Eros to stimulate the Eros, Psyche, Logos, dynamic expansion, complication, widening, deepening, uh, enrichment, all of that. Um, what if um, that soul-making, um, actually we take that as a, a, a kind of a conception that can form a base for other explanations of all kinds of things. In, t- in other words, we take soul-making as something um, kind of basic, kind of basic. Just simply saying, the soul wants, it has erotic desire for, in other words, the soul wants soul-making. It wants soul-making, um, it wants the expansion of soul-making the growth of soul-making, the movement of soul-making in all directions and domains, potentially infinitely, eventually. In other words, there's, there's a movement in time here, there's a becoming. So it may m- happen in fits and starts, or with blocks and then explosions and walls crumbling, or just gradual expansion or whatever. If we just say something basic, it sounds really simple. The soul wants, has an erotic desire for, the expansion of soul-making in all directions and domains, eventually. Or eventually in all directions and domains. So that, um, uh, you know, the soul-making in regard to the self, in regard to the beloved other or others, in regard to the world, um becomes or, or or is potentially equalized because the soul wants that soul-making expansion in all directions and domains. This is its natural, organic movement. So as imaginal and erotic objects, the other, the self, and the world are kind of equalized, balanced there. They're all filled out. The, the soul-making movement is happening in all those directions. But also in the, in the domains or directions of body, heart, mind, etc., All these um, are expanded to, or expanded with it. The the soul wants all these to be expanded. What the body is, how it can be perceived, what it means, what it can do, what it can feel, what it can sense, its ways of knowing. The heart, the mind, all of this. Not um, that one is blocked or or stuck or cramped. That would be um, a, a... Blocking or stucking or cramping of the whole eros Logos process, the whole soul-making movement, as we as we talked about earlier, and so there are problems when one of these directions or domains or aspects um, that uh, of of being of existence, um, when one is blocked. Um, as an avenue of soul-making, or there's a stuckness there, or it's cramped, something or other, the logos or the image or what, whatever is rigidified. That's when problems happen. Or there's an imbalance because one side is blocked, one direction is blocked, one aspect domain is blocked. For example, said the self is not equal. Either there's um, not the inclusion of the self in, in, in the, as as being filled out by the imaginal perception, or or there's a preoccupation with the self and, and not filling out, not attempting to the other as a magical uh, object, erotic object. Or the world is not included. What happens to our relationship with nature when we lose the eros and the sense of dimensionality of the natural world? What happens... Um, when we objectify another. In other words, we, they lose that dimensionality. They, we lose the eros there. Maybe there's still meta. We talked about this before. But somehow I've objectified them. What happens? As I said, in, 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 what happens, for example, if, if, if our notion of flesh or materiality or the body is um, is not allowed to, it's not allowed that the soul making erotic um involvement with flesh with body it, uh, is not um allowed in in some in some way or other so that actually our sense and our concept and our perception then of flesh and body is is stuck at one level maybe of one dimensionality maybe of uh, you know whatever it is it is this it's good for that it's not good for this it's this or that, and so to me, this is an, this is a really interesting exploration. Just to play with the idea or the notion or entertain and um, experiment a little bit with placing soul making as a really fundamental um, or kind of fundamental idea or movement. Um, in, in the whole of our way of thinking about psychology and spirituality and, and path and all of that. So, for instance, it's quite interesting to me to think about, to to sort of reconsider um, human developmental psychology. I won't go into this a, a lot, i right? just mentioned something just as a star in case someone at some point wants to pick it up. You know, Freud um, uh, regarded pleasure-seeking as the sort of, essentially is the fundamental drive of the human being and that's if you like that's what eros meant to him um and and problems arose when there was a conflict between that those drives for pleasure which are often sexual etc and uh, gratification of sense pleasure um were blocked or inhibited by and needed to be inhibited by culture and society and Parenting and whatnot. So there was a whole developmental psychology that actually placed what he called eros, which is the pleasure seeking, at the, at the at their fundament. Um, half a century or so later, um, Douglas, I think his name was Douglas Fairburn, was Scottish um, psychoanalyst in in the sort of Freudian lineage, loosely speaking, um, in what's called the British Object Relations School. Um, and he actually said the fundamental movement is object seeking. And that's what he, his word for that was libido rather than eros. Um, so actually, this is what the infant, or the baby seeks is, is, is an object, the other. And really, what's fundamental, the fundamental drive is to connect with others. So, not as Freud says, sense pleasure, gratification of sense pleasures, or the reduction of the tension in the drives um, towards uh, sense pleasure, etc. Um, Fairburn proposed this what he was calling libidinal drive, um, was connecting with others. That was the primary thing. And then there was an anti-libidinal. I'm going to come back to this in another uh, pr- later on in the retreat. Anti-libidinal uh, drive, which was if you like um, to protect, uh, that got kind of consolated there to protect one from the disappointment or pain of um, rejection by the Object that we sought, um, or the unavailability of that object, and so these um, can get internalized as well—the object and the libidinal drives, etc. Um, in his in his uh, theory, but what's fundamental is the connection with others. <clears throat> Uh, or, or nowadays quite popular to to consider, oh, you know, in the womb, and um, there was a sort of state of oneness and, and wholeness, you know, uh, non-differentiation from the mother in that environment, sort of oceanic uh, state of oneness and bliss, and non-separation. And then at birth, there's the trauma of the separation um, into differentiated being um, in the world. And uh, the, the trauma of separation from the oneness, which is a great shock to the system, and the whole um, production of the self sense or the construction of the self sense is as a for- is really a force for coherence, for delimitation. I stop here for boundaries, um, which uh, whose function is to protect against. Um, if you like, a dissolution into oneness, you are actually creating boundaries because the memory of oneness is is full of this sense of trauma uh at the birth separation, and then for others, for instance the the the, the cohort to sort of ego psychology is really in developmental psychology um what we're what, what it sets out to achieve is exactly this well boundary to self kind of coherent well boundary self that's the fundamental achievement of psychological health and and maturity so so there's lots of you know there's there's more but but it's interesting to me like what if we um, conceived of eros as we've been speaking about it uh, and soul making as the fundamental drive not pleasure seeking so that's connected and not um so we mean more than pleasure-seeking, which is Freud's thing. We would mean also more than the object, as um, Fairburn would have it, um, that w- which sounds very like ours, or connecting with others. Isn't that what we defined eros with, the connection, the wanting more connection? Um, but there's there's differences there, because the other, the object-seeking, the object that Fairbairn's uh, child, if you like, or theoretical child, infant, seeks is um, a kind of fixed, is, is it automatically assumed to be a kind of fixed, well-defined, um, stable, limited object, person. Not, you know, admittedly complex, we, we recognize that, etc. But um, not infinite, not um, full of other dimensions, uh, possibly infinite and um, imaginal dimensions and potentially divine and all that. And um, in our uh, way we've been talking on this street. Eros is not um, <coughs> equivalent to a, a sort of a movement or force towards oneness and dissolution in oneness, which somehow needs to be protected against. Actually, Eros, as we've said, organically um, creates and retains some, an otherness, some degree of separation of self and other, and distinction of self between self and other. So that Kohut's idea of uh, achieving the well boundaried self <coughs> needn't be fundamental either. It's just partly it's what happens in in the soul-making process. Eros will um, kind of c- create uh, some sense of of um, division there, some sense of boundary of self. Um, so this is. I'm just touching on this really to open something up for future investigation, really. But so there's there's a I don't know how it sounds. It, the, the distinction is subtle, but I would say quite significant. We're so used to thinking about developmental psychology in um, in 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 other terms, they've become almost entrenched for psychologists. Um, but I just wonder what would happen if we. Thought about eros in the way that we're talking about it, and soul making in the way that we're talking about it, as um, as as really the fundamental drive, if you like. <clears throat> um, and what would that imply, you know, with respect to a, a construction of a developmental psychology, and and how would we think about various pathologies that you know human beings have, whatever it is, um, in relation to that, you know, in relation to that framework. Um, so the way that um, we're kind of conceiving of the object that it saw is different than what Fairburn would think we, um, uh, the, the, and the sense of the self also is certainly different than what Kohut would, would kind of um, uh, regard as the achievement um, and implicit in what we're saying is this recognition of image as image you know, all that's part of the soul make the natural part of the soul-making dynamic. The question is, which one of these get, and how, get blocked, and at what point, and in what direction? So, um, the, the soul-making movement, so it doesn't lead to a dissolution of the self, or a reification of the self. It's really important to have a sense of a real self before you can let go of it. It's, like, it's almost like a, you know, it's almost like a dogma. Is that really the problem? <clears throat> it doesn't reify self or object. But that might be um, a stage in the soul making process. You know, these these aspects of the other um, a sort of object conceived, just uh, you know, less dimensionally, less less imaginally pregnant, if you like. Um, it might just be a stage, and Kohut's stage of the achievement of the psychologically bounded, coherent self, um, that's just a stage of the soul making process, maybe. You know, and again, um, so I'm just playing with something but to me it's quite an interesting thing to start thinking about if, if you're interested in these kind of things. Um, and again, you know, so much of what we consider. Um, or what a lot of modern psychology considers the self, uh, w- which there is quite a, a range in that uh, ideation concept. But, um, you know, just to just see how relative it is to Western Western modernist culture, as I said before. So Ernst Casseret uh, wrote a whole series of books, <coughs> um, The Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, I think is the big title. But um, he talks about um, the of Sumatra, and for them, um, the, the self w- was uh, sort of if in relationship with um, uh, a, a spirit particular, peculiar to that self, I think it was called a but I can't remember, um, and it's sort of within the person, but not really, and it's separate from their ego, separate from their eye, and there can be all kinds of conflict so this is not the coherent um, unfragmented um, self of of cohort etc and this was regarded as actually this is normal this is what a person um, involves so there's the person and there's this spirit that's kind of um, in relationship with them. And there can be conflict. The person wants one thing, the ego wants one thing, and the spirit wants another. Uh, but there's something of a power that this um, spirit, if it's called Ba, I can't remember, has, in determining the character and and even the future of that person. You know, we just, certain notions of what's healthy, etc., are just, are just actually products of um, modernist, um, Western um, culture which we take for reality and, uh, a- and don't question often you know? and what would it be also if we, if we consider developmental psychology and I've touched on this in other talks in the past it's like we tend to think of the past causes the present and causality just runs from past so we look for the first causes and we look for the conditions and the environment or the trauma or this or that and it's moving that way from past to present but what if causality actually opens a whole sense of causality that doesn't just come from the past it can in some way we are called to something in the future. And it also comes from the present, independent origination. And, and th- what's causal is not simply what um, manifests on a material level in a kind of simply human um, dimension. So in other words, um, this notion that the Bataks have in Sumatra of, of some non-material um, entity, if you like, being actually quite causative. Do we need? Um, do we actually need? Uh, what is served and what is um, not served, and in fact lost when we constrain our notions of causality? Oh, not just notions of self, but the, the, uh, the notions of causality as well. And this is healthy. And this is healthy thinking. And this is what healthy self is. And this is what healthy self should be, etc. So then, considering thinking about certain pathologies or the various kinds of pathology, the range of pathologies <coughs> that can occur for human beings um which of course is related to developmental psychology. We tend to think of pathology as some oftentimes as some not always, but as some kind of uh related to development and um, child psychology and what may be arrested or incomplete development in some way or another. But uh, beginning to think about that, and really, this is just a, an opening, a sort of, I'm pointing at a direction, as I said. <coughs> but uh, I think can be quite fruitful. But beginning to think about pathologies, you know, we've touched on this already. What, um, what happens if the imaginal dimension is available to be opened? in a certain direction, for instance, in relation to other, but not in relation to self, or in relation to self, but not in relation to other. And there's a kind of lopsidedness um, to the soul-making opening and movement there. You know, what would that... uh, cause, what causes that for a start, but also what what would that then result in, that kind of lopsidedness, what would it result in, in the in the child psychology, in the developmental psychology, what kind of pathologies, if it becomes a long-term, kind of habitual uh, uh, mode of, of being, of seeing, uh, to be lopsided in that way, or blocked in a certain direction, <coughs> of um, imaginal filling out. Or, uh, again, as we've, we've mentioned, all this is, we can see it mirrored in our moment-to-moment meditative uh, um, explorations, but what, what if this gets repeated and becomes a kind of a way of being in the world? Um, not seeing image as image, not understanding this is image. See this image, and it is image. What happens if there's that kind of reification? <clears throat> of course, that's, that's actually quite common, um, but, uh, we don't tend to realize that, um, so that in the culture and education, there's this real push, make sure the child know, knows what reality is and, and, uh, fear of the imagination that it lingers too much, um, except in very contained directions, perhaps in art class or whatever, or, you know, theater at school or something like that. Um, but this real almost, um, Fear of the imagination, so kind of squash the imagination, and and really emphasise something called reality. Maybe a um, healthy psychology actually, or or even a situation as we've been talking about, actually needs a, uh, the Im, the imaginal dimension needs to be allowed more, amplified more, explored more, opened to, and opened. <coughs> so it might be. Uh, so again, it's a very different way of thinking about uh, psychology, developmental psychology, pathology, etc. You know, I wonder: um, do, do children, do, does an infant, does a child really believe her or his images and confuse them with reality? When children are playing, this does not seem to be uh, t- seem to me to be the, to be the case. You know, we the, there's a Fear about that, as if the pathology um, lies in a over um, or rather we need to pre- prevent the uh, the imaginal growing uh, i I wonder if if I wonder if actually we can trust. Um, the human psyche to to see image as image to understand that image is image in, in its natural development that will be part of what it understands if it is allowed to if it's supported to unless it's subject to some kind of um, some kind of pressure of, of some kind of fundamentalist dogma and that can be what seems to us to be a very obvious fundamentalist dogma, whatever it is of some kind of religious fundamentalism of belief, not seeing an image as an image or um, much more hard to see for us because it's um, totally woven into our culture and we don't even see it so that's interesting too Um, not seeing an image as an image is regarded as relatively okay if most people around me agree to see it that way and agree to see it this is reality it's not an image so if if, if my whole community is not seeing this image share some image and don't see this image as an image it's somehow deemed psychologically okay from outside of that community it, it looks really pathological bonkers dangerous etc but but I wonder if, if there's this, as I said, natural organic m- movement of the psyche to understand uh, the imaginal and to see it as image, if it's allowed to, if it's supported to, if it's not subject to kind of the, the pressures of fundamentalism or some kind of um, logos or, or whatever that that um, doesn't allow that. So again, when we think of pathogen, just kind of stating on a bigger scale, as I said, what we've explored in the in the kind of moment-to-moment meditative questions a little bit, meditative navigation. You know, um, if we think about the Eros, psyche, logos, dynamic expansion, mutual fertilization, etc., um, where can that get blocked or out of balance? Um, is it the logos? Is it the Image getting stuck somewhere or rigid, rigid uh, rigidly identified, not seeing image as image. Is it in the direction of the self of the other, of the world, of the eros itself, of the love, or of something like the body? So the body is r- related to, um, in in a way that's, uh, you know, doesn't get imaginally filled out. Might be all kinds of. Uh, belief in an image of the body or, or an idea of the body or the Eros has got stuck in relation to the body. Something's imbalanced, something's blocked in that whole kind of, um, if, if you like, uh, circular mandala where everything wants to move in all directions and something gets blocked in the Eros, in the Psyche, in the Logos, and in the image of the self, the other world, the Eros, the body, whatever it is. And not seeing images, as image, and and, and c- there c- comes the pathologies out of that. There comes the the incomplete uh, or arrested development out of that. Perhaps. So just a some ideas to throw out for I think um, I think interesting to reflect on and and maybe fruitful. and lastly, just to touch on something that I've, I, uh, just to say again, something I've touched on before. And to my mind, we um, want, and and perhaps in, in the kinds of concepts that we're talking about in the conceptual framework that we're kind of unfolding here um, with the soul-making, the explanation of the soul-making dynamic and what's involved there, um, we need, and and perhaps we have, a conceptual framework that, Implies already implicit in it. It it uh, insists, if you like, that eros and soul making will always, if you like, elude our a final understanding. They're always more than we can ever understand. Why? Because the eros, because of the pothos in the eros, always wants more of whatever it it um, uh, comes into relationship with as an erotic. Uh, object and and stimulates the eros psychological dynamic uh, to create, discover more, always more. So expanding, opening, stretching, breaking the boundaries of anything it comes into contact with. Um, in in creating and discovering more of that thing, including uh, not just psyche and soul, but eros itself. What, and whatever uh, logos or idea is involved with, with the notion of psyche or the notion of eros so whatever idea of it, that those boundaries and ideas, as I think I said before, are delineations they make boundaries, but they also will be um, bro- broken open, expanded, stretched, etc just because of the eros-psyche-logos dynamic will eventually move in the direction of eros and the direction of soul itself it will, inc- rather, it will include them in, <coughs> in its whole kind of um, expanding vortex uh, of, of movement, involvement, of digestion, of transformation, transubstantiation, creation, discovery. So in a way, um, this whole idea of uh, the Eros Psyche Logos uh, movement and process <coughs> and involvement means that any logos, any idea, will um, expand or break in time. In time it will crack. And uh, to paraphrase Leonard Cohen, uh, there's a crack in everything, and that's where the light comes in. So we might think of that in terms of our broken heart and, and our imperfections as being, but it's all, we can also just just as much apply it to the I- ideas, to Logoi, to conceptual frameworks. So implicit in this, in the way that we're talking about the soul-making dynamic and eros psychologos and all that, is this idea of the Kabbalistic idea of the breaking of the vessels, as I mentioned before, the shivat hakilim is is it will break. And the crack is a blessing, the light comes in. In other words, there's an illumination, there's a further expansion, something of the divine, if we amplify that. The light of the divine comes in via the crack. Something, uh, we we will reach a point with any idea, with any concept or framework, where it won't be able to contain or account um, for... Our experience, or new ideas, or whatever, new observations. The um, very idea of the Eros Psyche Logos dynamic, maybe that too, that too. It's interesting as an idea, though, because it includes within it this idea of of the breaking of the vessels, of the of the cracks, because of the, what it implies about expansion. And actually, <clears throat> I mean, uh, there are already cracks, if you like, in this idea. St- or let's say structural weaknesses, circularities, as there must be with any um, conceptual framework, actually. Is that a problem? Maybe theory, conceptual framework theory, is more Theater. Theory is theater more than reality or truth. Theory is theater. I don't actually think those words are etymologically related, but let's put them together. Imaginally, theory is theater. What does that mean? It's theater. Theater actually has, etymology has to do with the gods, theos, I think. I'm not sure, but that would be interesting too. Theory is part of divine theatre. The question is not about its reality and truth, but what is it serving? What is it serving, a theory, a conceptual framework? (coughs) And we've already said soul-making, serving soul-making. And and the theory itself is part of soul. The logos is part of of what we're calling soul and soul-making. So in a way, we discover a conceptual framework based on our observations and, and kind of deductions from that. Uh, but we create it. We could say we forge it. And with the double implication of what that word means, we forge a conceptual framework. We are forging a conceptual framework. And theory is theatre. This is a very, uh, to me, a whole notion of concept that's soul-making, that's fertile. To me, beautiful as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.